The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, A Whale of a Tale. Within pretty much any religion, it is traditional to come up with faith-promoting stories, with stories of the miraculous, with stories of divine intervention, and with stories that by these miracles and divine intervention demonstrate in some way the truth of the religion that is creating and recounting these stories. In no religion or church is that phenomenon more apparent and at work than in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which has as one of its cardinal tenets the idea that miracles still occur today in the Lord's Church, i.e. the LDS Church, because it is the same church that existed in New Testament times and the same church that existed in Old Testament times. And the miracles that occurred in the Old Testament and the New Testament are still at work, and that power is still at play today in the Lord's Church. The purpose of telling such faith-promoting stories is to promote the faith. But unfortunately, when such stories are told, they are frequently able to be dismantled. And if any investigation at all is done into the story, frequently the miraculous aspects of the story evaporate, like the morning mist before the rising sun. In 2017, the LDS Church was treated to at least three such stories. Two of them were told in General Conference in April of 2017. And Bill Reel and I, in a conference review, dealt with both of those stories and upon our analysis and investigation of the facts behind the stories discovered that actually the miraculous elements of those stories was extremely called into question. The first of those stories had to do with an earthquake in Japan which created a tsunami or a huge tidal wave that hit the east coast of Japan a number of years ago. The story went that the mission president who was in the affected area had a missionary leadership training meeting that was scheduled for what would end up being the day of the tsunami, but he felt inspired not just to call in the normal missionary leaders he would call in for this training meeting, but to call in all the missionaries from the East Coast. And the story was told in such a way as to leave the impression with the membership and those listening that because the mission president was prompted by the Holy Ghost to call in all the missionaries from the coast, and because the mission president heeded that prompting and did in fact call in all those missionaries from the coast that the missionaries were spared the horrific consequences of being on the coastline when the tsunami struck. As Bill Reel and I dug into the facts related to the actual incident and as we looked at the mission president's journal that he was posting about in real time while this tsunami was occurring and in the days thereafter there were still a number of missionaries who were on the coast who got caught up in this tsunami and who were not called in to the mission home for the training. So when we looked at that story from the way it was told in General Conference, which was very miraculous and quite faith-affirming and faith-promoting, and then compared it with the actual facts of what really happened, the miraculous aspects of the story evaporated. They went away. It ended up being not a faith-promoting story at all. And in fact, we could tell where the speaker or the teller of the story in general conference was intentionally skewing information, slanting information, and avoiding the mention of certain information with the specific goal in mind of making this story sound miraculous. The second story that was told in general conference had to do with a stake center in Southern California that caught fire. The fire department was called and the fire chief came to the rescue along with his battalion of firefighters to take care of the building to put out the blaze. And as the building was caught up in this fire, so the story went, the fire chief, once again a non-member, was moved upon by the Holy Ghost in such a way as to be prompted to send his men into the blazing building in order to take off the wall the church artwork and preserve it outside because that was so important to him. Once again, we looked at this story and found out, well, no, that's not really what happened. The fire chief did report to the fire. 
his men and women did fight the fire. And after the fire was out, and after it was completely doused, they did go into the building and take out some of the artwork to keep it from getting damaged, not by the fire, but by the water they had been spraying on the building in order to put out the fire. And once again, we see the same thing at work. The speaker is telling the story in such a way and slanted in such a way as to make it sound miraculous when actually it was not miraculous at all. In fact, as we noted, any fire chief who sent his men and women into a blazing building to take some artwork off the wall and put their lives in jeopardy in doing so would have been fired from his position by the next morning. The third story that came out in 2017 was not told in general conference, but was told by Elder Jeffrey Holland to a group of mission presidents, and they were at the Missionary Training Center, and as part of their training, he appeared before them and told a story. It was a miraculous story. It was a story which I have covered in a prior episode called Make Way for Dodos. And in this story, as you recall, it dealt with a young man in Idaho raised in a faithful, devout Mormon family who had enough of their righteous and pious ways, decided he was going to hit the road and live a more riotous and fun lifestyle, ended up going to New York, got fed up in New York, went to Southern California. He ends up becoming a member of a motorcycle gang. He's a Hell's Angel. He's living at the Hell's Angel Clubhouse down in Southern California when all of a sudden two missionaries come walking by the house where he is living. And as you will recall, the two Rottweilers, or Doberman Pinchers, it depends on which version of the story you're listening to, when they see the missionaries go by, they go rushing up to the fence and up to the gate, and they are only contained by the chains around their necks, and they are barking and they are slathering, and they scare the bejesus out of these two missionaries. But then the two missionaries walk on by, they look at each other, in some versions they have a prayer, then they come back, and these two Dobermans, or Rottweilers, now all of a sudden look at them, they're not ferocious anymore, they have been somehow entranced by something miraculous that happened, and they turn around, and they go walking back up to the steps of the porch, and they lie down, and they go to sleep. Then the two missionaries come through the gate, walk up the steps to this biker, and start talking to him, and in the process of talking to him, they find out that this biker is from the same town as one of the missionaries. And when they find out that he's from the same town as one of the missionaries, they then find out that his parents, the biker's parents, are the parents of one of the missionaries. And then as the story unfolds, it turns out that this is the missionary's older brother, whom the missionary had never met because he was born after the older brother left home. And somehow, through the miraculous workings of the Holy Ghost in a variety of different ways, this one missionary was led to this one house on this day in Southern California. And the miracles of God unfolded with the Doberman Pinchers, and he was able to talk to his brother and bring him back into the church, where he did come back to the church and got married in the temple. This story was told in June or July of 2017 by Elder Holland to a group of newly called mission presidents. And only one month later, Elder Holland, through his spokespeople at the church, had to issue a retraction of the story because, as it turned out, members of the family of the biker or the missionary, not sure exactly who, because that was never clarified, had contacted Elder Holland and told him, well, Elder Holland, we appreciate your telling the story and everything, but actually, all that miraculous stuff that you talked about never happened. In fact, the biker guy, who did become a biker guy and left the church, came back to the church and was rebaptized before his younger brother even went on his mission. So there was nothing miraculous. There was no Doberman pinchers. There was no miraculous calming of the dogs like Daniel in the Doberman's den. There was no miraculous teaching of the gospel by the younger missionary to his older brother and converting him to come back to the church. And I did an entire podcast talking about all the inherent contradictions in the story, as well as the retraction that was ultimately issued by Elder Holland through the church news. So this is the position the church finds itself in. They need miracle stories in order to continue to justify their belief, their foundational belief, that miracles still occur in the LDS church. But they run the risk when they tell these stories of having somebody pay attention to it, somebody hear about it, somebody with knowledge of the actual facts of the story finding out that it's not true. The miraculous stuff never happened. And then ending up with egg on their face like Elder Holland had on his face when he had to issue the retraction. Now the reason for this introduction is because in the April 2018 
General Conference. I already did an episode on that conference. It was called General Conference Death March. It was about the 11 stories told in General Conference where people die, where there is no healing, where there is no priesthood blessing, where there is no miraculous power manifested to preserve their lives. But there was one story, one brave member of the 70 trotted out a miracle story in order to try and bolster the sagging faith of the Latter-day Saints. And we're going to talk about that story here in a few minutes. I will play the audio and I will make some comments about the story. And unfortunately, it ends up being that this story is just about as believable as the two stories told in April General Conference of last year and just about as believable as the story that Elder Holland told the mission presidents in summer of last year. But I want to talk about one other person before I get there. And that other person is the person that I always think of when I think about fake stories, fake spiritual stories, fake miracle stories, fake faith-promoting stories being told in the church. And that person is Paul H. Dunn. Now, you can probably tell, even if you've never heard of Paul H. Dunn before, that he is a general authority in the LDS Church. That's because he has the middle initial, right? Paul H. Dunn. And there was a scandal surrounding Paul H. Dunn that happened about 30 years ago. So it's actually possible that some of my listeners may never have heard of Paul H. Dunn and certainly may not have heard him speak in General Conference or at BYU or read any of his books. But if you go to the LDS Church website where they have General Conference addresses for over the past 50 years or so, going back to 1970, you will find that there still are a number of talks up there by Paul H. Dunn, and you can listen to this man speak in his own words. Well, Paul H. Dunn was quite likely the most popular speaker the LDS Church has ever had, certainly within the 20th century. He was hugely popular. He was extremely dynamic, charismatic, and when he spoke, he had a way of telling stories that just pulled you in. They were amazing stories that he told. They were stories about himself. They were stories about what he did and miraculous experiences that he had himself during World War II especially and also later on when he was a professional baseball player with the St. Louis Cardinals. He was called as a member of the 70 in 1964 and he was the church's most popular speaker and popular book author for the 1960s, the 1970s, and even up into the 1980s. But at the end of the 1980s, something very bad happened to Paul H. Dunn, and that is that a reporter began to do some research into his stories, into his miracle stories that happened in World War II, into his miraculous, wonderful, faith-affirming stories that happened when he was a professional baseball player with the St. Louis Cardinals. And the bottom line is that this reporter discovered that the miracle stories that Paul H. Dunn told were long on story and very short on miracle. In fact, there was nothing miraculous about the stories that he told. In fact, a lot of the stories that he told never even happened. And what makes this only more interesting is that the reporter who was primarily involved in this investigation was a nephew of an apostle. The reporter's name was Len Packer. That's L-Y-N-N. It is a man. He was the nephew of an apostle. And if you know your apostles well enough, you can guess what apostle he was the nephew of. Len Packer was the nephew of Boyd K. Packer. And as Lynn Packer began to do more and more investigation and uncover more and more of the fraud that Paul H. Dunn had been perpetrating upon the church for three decades in telling these fake miracle stories, Lynn Packer came under increasing pressure by the church. Because unfortunately what happened is that the church tried to kill the story. That is always the church's first response. Keep the truth from getting out. If there's any truth out there that could negatively impact the church, it must be hidden. The story must be killed. And what Boyd K. Packer did was he threatened to fire his nephew, Lynn Packer, if he went ahead and published the article about Paul H. Dunn. The reason he could do that is because Lynn Packer worked for the church. 
So the church was in a position to fire him if he went forward with the article and published it. Making matters only worse was that Lynn Packer's wife at the time was suffering from cancer. His job provided insurance for her cancer treatment, and if he lost his job, he lost his insurance, and his wife was left without any coverage. So that just makes things more ugly. But what ended up happening, and I'm not going to try and go into detail on this whole Paul H. Dunn story. I'm just bringing up a few details here because I want to get to my main point about the stories, and I'll make those in a second, is that this story ended up coming out. Now, what the church did when they found out that these stories were out there and that they were on the verge of publication is that in 1989, they released Paul H. Dunn as a general authority. They released him as a 70. They put him on emeritus status. At the time, Paul H. Dunn was only 66 years old. He was not 70 years old, which is when general authorities, other than apostles, go to emeritus status. And the story was circulated that it was because of Paul H. Dunn's health problems. Yes, that's why they put him on emeritus status four years early, was because of his health problems. It had nothing to do with the fact that it was on the verge of becoming public, that all these stories he had told for all these years were not true. So let me mention a few of these stories that Paul H. Dunn told that were not true, that were debunked by the investigative journalism of Lynn Packer. These are among the stories. There are more stories that he told that ended up being debunked. Number one was that Paul H. Dunn had played Major League Baseball with the St. Louis Cardinals. He had not. He never played Major League Baseball at all. So the stories he told about the wonderful things that happened while he was a Major League Baseball player obviously did not happen. The second was that Paul H. Dunn was only one of six in his 1,000-man combat group who survived World War II. This is among the World War II stories that Paul H. Dunn told. And there were a number of such World War II stories. And I remember listening to these World War II stories told by Paul H. Dunn because shortly after I got back from my mission in 1981, I obtained, I purchased, I went to the local church store in Austin, Texas, and I got copies of these tapes. They were hugely popular, as you might imagine. I listened to them. I shared them with other people. They were wonderful. Each of these stories I remember hearing from Paul H. Dunn's own mouth via the tape player. And what he said was that there were 1,000 men in his combat group and that only six of them survived World War II and he was the only one of the six survivors who was not wounded. The facts ended up being that actually out of the 1,000 men combat group in which Paul H. Dunn was enlisted, 30 of them were killed. Not all of them, but six. That's a huge difference. Paul H. Dunn was among the 970 members of a 1,000-man combat group who were not killed in World War II. Doesn't sound quite so miraculous, does it? And in describing different stories about how it was that he was miraculously preserved during World War II, he told a story about being the sole survivor among 11 infantrymen in a 100-yard race against death, during which one burst of machine gun fire ripped his right boot off, another tore off his ammunition and canteen belt, and yet another split his helmet in half, all without wounding him. This story also ended up being a bunch of hooey. Finally on this short list is that Paul H. Dunn's best friend died in his arms from serious injuries sustained in a battle on Okinawa. This best friend was named Harold Brown. That's according to Paul H. Dunn when he was telling the story. And his best friend was in another foxhole. Paul H. Dunn was in one foxhole. His friend Harold Brown is in another. They can't get to each other because they're under heavy fire. And sometime during the night, a mortar lands directly on the foxhole of Paul H. Dunn's friend, Harold Brown. Well, Harold Brown makes it through the night and Paul H. Dunn is able to get over there finally and hold his head in his arms. And he's cradling him as Harold Brown lies there dying. Paul H. Dunn says he actually counted after he died the number of gashes and shrapnel that Harold Brown had taken in his body and they were 67 in number and some of them so big you could stick your hand in. Yes, that's what Paul H. Dunn said. And before he died, Harold Brown looks up into Paul H. Dunn's eyes and say, Paul, I'm not gonna make it. Will you do two things for me if you make it out of this awful war? Number one, I want you to tell my family that I was faithful to the end. And number two, if you ever have a chance to be talking to the youth of America, I want you to let them know from me it was an honor 
to die for them. So you can see how dramatic this story is. Paul H. Dunn goes on to say that the first thing he did after he got back to the States was he went right to Missouri and he told Harold Brown's family that their son had died with honor, that he had been faithful to the end. Now, the only reason I go into a little bit more detail on this story is that the way it was discovered to be false was kind of remarkable because Harold Brown, while he did serve in World War II, and while he was, in fact, Paul H. Dunn's best friend, did not die in World War II. In fact, he was still alive in the late 1980s when the reporters are calling him and asking him questions about how it is that Paul H. Dunn can be telling a story about him, Harold Brown, dying in World War II when it was obvious that he was still alive. So what happened here was that when this evidence was coming forward, the church first tried to kill it. They were aware that Paul H. Dunn was making up these stories, and yet they continued to sell his books at the church bookstore. These were hugely popular books. They continued to sell his audio tapes of his stories at the church bookstore. Once again, these were hugely popular. And with the popularity comes along, ka-ching, that's right. They make money, not only for Paul H. Dunn, but also for the church that sold them. And so what the church did was they tried to kill the story. They retired Paul H. Dunn prematurely into emeritus status so that he wouldn't be speaking anymore. And they let him go gently into that good night. At least that's what they were hoping would happen. Nevertheless, a couple of years later in 1991, the story did break and it put the church in a difficult position. But the church played it off as saying, well, he's on emeritus status now for health reasons and there's no way we can independently corroborate or disprove the stories he told at this late date and therefore we're just going to let it slide. Even though presumably they could have called Harold Brown and talked to him and figured out while they were talking to him that he wasn't actually dead like Paul H. Dunn said he was. But they chose not to take that step. Some things you just don't want to know. But the reason I bring up Paul H. Dunn and the reason this was such a significant problem for the LDS Church is because here's a leader of the LDS Church telling miracle stories about himself, miracle stories that not only aggrandize Paul H. Dunn, I mean, he's the one to whom all these miracles are happening, obviously he's got to be pretty important to God, but also being used in such a way as to prove the truth of the LDS Church. Because these things happened to me, a righteous Mormon soldier or a righteous Mormon professional baseball player, that means that the church is true. And in fact, I also remember listening to Paul H. Dunn, I think it might have been one of his recorded talks, saying at the end, look, there may be times when you as youth of the church have troubles or questions about the church, and that's okay, but when those times come, I want you to remember that there are those of us who really know that Jesus is the Christ, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints really is true. So obviously this becomes a problem. If a church leader tells stories, miraculous stories, that are later proven and even admitted to being false, what does that say about other church leaders who have told miraculous stories and maybe not been caught in them? What does it say about other church leaders who have told miraculous stories and perhaps not later admitted that they were false, like Paul H. Dunn had to. And ultimately, we're brought back to the point of recognizing the fact that the entire superstructure of the LDS Church is based upon a young man who told miraculous stories about things that had happened to him and who then assumed the position of the first prophet and president of the LDS Church, that being Joseph Smith. If you have one instance of a church leader doing this kind of stuff, it opens the door wide to the possibility that another church leader could have done the same thing. And if Paul H. Dunn told miracle stories to show the truth of the church and to show how special he was in the eyes of God, is it at not least possible that Joseph Smith did the exact same thing? This is why the Paul H. Dunn scandal was such a powerful blow to the very roots of the tree of Mormonism, but it goes even beyond that because Paul H. Dunn was an extremely inspirational speaker. When he told these stories, people felt the Spirit confirming the truth of these stories to them. I felt the Spirit confirming the truth of these stories to me. So when the scandal broke, I'm left to pick up the pieces and I'm left to wonder 
How is it that the Spirit of God could confirm to me the truth of these stories by Paul H. Dunn, which were completely made up, fabricated, and not true? How could the Spirit do that to me? How could the Spirit bear witness to me of the truth of something that was not true? And once I came to grips with that, I had to ask the next obvious question. If the Spirit has witnessed to me the truth of things that I find out later are not true, what does that do to any other spiritual experience I have had where the Spirit has witnessed the truth of things to me? If I'm in a position where I feel the Spirit has witnessed to me that the Book of Mormon is true, well, what does that say about that witness? Could the Book of Mormon be just as true as Paul H. Dunn's World War II stories? If I have a testimony that the president of the church is a prophet of God, and that has been witnessed to me by the Spirit, could that be just as true as Paul H. Dunn saying that he played Major League Baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals? You can see what a thorny issue this is for the church, and you can perhaps see why it was that the church decided to just fade out on Paul H. Dunn and not deal in a forthright manner with the questions that the Paul H. Dunn scandal brought squarely into focus. So having said all that about faith-promoting stories in the LDS Church, I thought that would be a good preface to our analysis of the story told in April 2018 General Conference. Once again, like Paul H. Dunn, this is another war story, but it's not a World War II story. It's a Korean War story. But unlike Paul H. Dunn, this story deals with someone who was not a soldier, but actually a sailor. And not just a sailor, but an ensign on a troop transport ship during the Korean War, which was fought in the early 1950s between the United States and Korea. And this ensign is named Frank Blair. Now, Frank Blair is the hero of the story. He is, of course, the Mormon in the story. And the story is told by Elder Larry Y. Wilson in the Sunday morning session of 2018 April General Conference. As I said before, this story is the only miracle story that is even attempted in this entire general conference. And calling it a miracle story may actually be too charitable. It's really not much of a miracle story. It ends up being a story that could just as easily be interpreted as a guy who's a Mormon who happens to be an ensign on this transport ship. The ship is caught in a horrible typhoon. He gets a couple of ideas about what to do to make things better. He communicates them to the captain. The captain follows his suggestion and everything works out okay. Not much of a miracle story. But what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play this story as it was told by Elder Larry Wilson in 2018 April General Conference. I'll make a couple of comments along the way as we go and then we'll have our analysis afterward. Because what ends up happening is that even if the story is true, it's not much of a miracle story. But the problem is that there are so many errors and so many things in this story that are difficult if not impossible to believe that the entire story ends up collapsing of its own weight. And that's what we'll see in the analysis. So for right now, let's play the tape. Here comes Elder Larry Wilson relating the story about Ensign Frank Blair from the early 1950s in the Korean War. And he's going to talk about this in terms of how great it is to be able to receive promptings from, you guessed it, the Holy Ghost. Play the tape. Brothers and sisters, it is an extraordinary privilege to have the Holy Spirit for our guide, as demonstrated by the following experience. During the Korean War, Ensign Frank Blair served on a troop transport ship stationed in Japan. The ship wasn't large enough to have a formal chaplain, so the captain asked Brother Blair to be the ship's informal chaplain, having observed that the young man was a person of faith and principle, highly respected by the whole crew. Okay, the stage has been set. Ensign Frank Blair is a faithful Mormon. He is respected by the crew. He is righteous. This is a guy that God can talk to. He is a person who is pure enough to be communicated to by the Holy Ghost. Continuing on. Ensign Blair wrote, Our ship was caught in a huge typhoon. The waves were about 45 feet high. I was on watch, during which time one of our three engines stopped working. 
Okay, now we start getting some details to the story, and it's important to keep track of these details. Number one, the typhoon has waves that are 45 feet high. Number two, there are three engines aboard this ship, one of which has stopped working. Going on. And a crack in the center line of the ship was reported. We had two remaining engines, one of which was only functioning at half power. We were in serious trouble. Ensign Blair finished his watch and was getting into bed when the captain knocked on his door. So now we have Ensign Blair, strangely, after finishing his watch during the middle of a typhoon that's kicking up 45-foot waves, finishing his shift and going to bed. But now the captain comes to knock on his door and ask for a special favor. The captain doesn't say, Ensign Blair, what the hell do you think you are doing going to bed during the middle of a typhoon? No, that's apparently okay to the captain. Instead, the captain has something different in mind that he wants to ask from Ensign Blair. He asked, would you please pray for this ship? Of course, Ensign Blair agreed to do so. At that point, Ensign Blair could have simply prayed, Heavenly Father, please bless our ship and keep us safe, and then gone to bed. Instead, he prayed to know if there was something he could do to help ensure the safety of the ship. Now, this ends up being the thrust of the story, that Ensign Blair does not just pray to Heavenly Father to protect the ship, because obviously the creator of the universe and the one who can calm the storm cannot be bothered with that kind of request. Instead, he has to ask Heavenly Father what it is that he, Ensign Blair, can do about the situation. So he asks him about the situation, says, hey, we're in this trouble. Is there anything I can do to help with this storm that we're in the middle of that might help save us and get us out of this alive? God, if you're not too busy, could you let me know? If you can't stop the storm, at least let me know what I can do. And amazingly, his prayer is answered. And here is what happens next. Play the tape. In response to Brother Blair's prayer, the Holy Ghost prompted him to go to the bridge speak with the captain and learn more. He found that the captain was trying to determine how fast to run the ship's remaining engines. Ensign Blair returned to his cabin to pray again. He prayed, What can I do to help address the problem with the engines? In response, the Holy Ghost whispered that he needed to walk around the ship and observe to gather more information. If you're scratching your head at this point and asking yourself, are you saying that the Holy Ghost told you to go out on the deck of a ship that's in the middle of a typhoon with 45-foot waves to go around and gather more information and you don't even know what the hell it is you're looking for? Yes, that's exactly what it is that Ensign Blair is saying. Now he's going to go and ask the captain first for permission if he can go out there because nobody in his right mind would be going out there and no captain in his right mind would be letting anybody go out there unless it's the ensign who is kind of expendable anyway. But the funny thing that we're going to find out later on is that the information that he gathers is stuff that the captain already knew. Going on with the story. He again returned to the captain and asked for permission to walk around the deck. Then with a lifeline tied around his waist, he went out into the storm. Standing on the stern, he observed the giant propellers as they came out of the water when the ship crested a wave. Please pay attention to that little factoid. It is one of the telltale signs that this story is made up. But also notice that he is going to pray not once, not twice, but three times. There will be a threefold repetition of his prayer, as in all good miracle stories. Going on. Only one was working fully and it was spinning very fast. After these observations, Ensign Blair once again prayed. There it is, the third time he prays. I told you it would happen. Going on. The clear answer he received was that the remaining good engine was under too much strain and needed to be slowed down. So he returned to the captain and made that recommendation. The captain was surprised, telling him that the ship's engineer had just suggested the opposite. Please note that this is where the story tips its hand. And what we find out is that even though the Holy Ghost led Ensign Blair out onto the deck of a ship tied with a lifeline in the middle of a typhoon with 45-foot waves risking life and limb to find out that one propeller is going faster than the other propeller, the captain already knows it. 
And not only does he know it, the engineer has already made a recommendation to the captain based upon that knowledge. And what is it the engineer has recommended to the captain going on? That they increase the speed of the good engine in order to outrun the storm. Nevertheless, the captain chose to follow Ensign Blair's suggestion and slowed the engine down. So according to the story, the ship's engineer, who already knows that there is one engine that is running fast and the other remaining engine is running slow, has recommended to the captain that they increase the speed of the one propeller that's going super fast already in order to outrun the storm. But, but, the ship's captain, instead of listening to the engineer, who actually knows what the hell he's talking about and whose advice the ship's captain is going to take over an ensign, instead, the ship's captain listens to Ensign Blair and reduces the speed of the remaining good engine going on. By dawn, the ship was safely in calm waters. This is an important detail when the story writer, Ensign Blair, says that by dawn the ship was safely in calm waters because what that means is that this entire incident happened at night. So not only was this all going on, during a massive typhoon with 45-foot waves, it was also happening in the black of night. That will become important later on. But it's a good thing, as it turned out, that the captain listened to the ensign instead of his ship's engineer, because if he had listened to the ship's engineer, catastrophe would have ensued, and the entire ship, with all hands on board, would likely have been lost in the typhoon. But because the ship's captain was smart enough to ignore the advice of the engineer and listen to the ensign, all hands were saved. And Ensign Blair ends up becoming responsible for saving the life of every man on the ship. Here's how the story concludes. Only two hours later, the good engine stopped working altogether. With half power in the remaining engine, the ship was able to limp into port. The captain said to Ensign Blair, if we had not slowed that engine when we did, we would have lost it in the middle of the storm. Without that engine, there would have been no way to steer. The ship would have overturned and been sunk. The captain thanked the young LDS officer and said he believed that following Ensign Blair's spiritual impressions had saved the crew and the ship. So that's how the story ends. Tragedy is averted. Ensign Blair is the hero because he followed the promptings of the Holy Spirit and he managed to save the entire ship by giving the correct advice prompted by God to the ship's captain, which the ship's captain, prompted by God perhaps, took over the ship's engineer's advice and saved the ship and the crew. Now, when I first heard this at General Conference, it did not make that much of an impression on me. As I said before, it's not much of a miracle story. In fact, when you hear it, it's virtually indistinguishable from a guy who's an ensign who happens to have a few ideas about things to do, follows up on those ideas, ends up making a recommendation to the captain, which the captain follows, ends up being a good recommendation. Everything turns out okay when otherwise it might not have. That's really the story. In a nutshell, not much of a spiritually faith-promoting story, but it's clear that Elder Wilson is laying it on pretty thick in order to squeeze as much miracle juice out of the story as he possibly can. But if we go into the story even a little bit, theologically, we're not even dealing with the facts of the story yet. The facts are not that impressive, but going into it theologically, the story starts getting problematic fast. If this guy, Ensign Blair, had not been on that ship, God would have destroyed the ship and killed all the sailors on it. If Ensign Blair hadn't prayed, God would have drowned the entire shipload of sailors. And if Ensign Blair had just prayed for God to make the ship safe, God would have drowned the entire shipload of sailors. It was all dependent upon Ensign Blair praying in a certain way, taking certain actions. Three times he prays, three actions he takes. He has to run the entire rat maze and find the piece of cheese at the end in order to keep God from drowning this entire shipload of sailors. This story seems to be a lot more about highlighting the righteousness of Ensign Blair than it is about God giving a damn 
about the sailors who are on board the ship. Isn't this the same God who created the universe? Isn't this the same God who told the storm to be still? But apparently, this same God cannot be troubled to simply calm the storm or make one engine propeller go faster than another because that would be so much more difficult than going through this entire labyrinth of promptings to Ensign Blair and having him do this and then prompt him again. Frankly, it would have been easier just to calm the storm at once. But no, the Mormon God doesn't do that anymore because the Mormon God is no longer a God of miracles. Instead, the Mormon God has people solve their own problems without his God's interference. It's kind of like the preacher that Gene Hackman played in The Poseidon Adventure, where he's trying to lead this group to safety on board the capsized luxury liner, and God keeps throwing obstacles in the way, and he's trying to get past the obstacles so he can save the people. And toward the end of the movie, Gene Hackman yells at God and says, if you're not going to help us, at least get out of the way. And what about all the other sailors on that ship who are in this huge typhoon who are praying to God? Do we think that Ensign Blair is the only person who's praying to God? No, he's not. Everybody's praying to God. Anybody who believes in a God, and a lot that don't, are praying to God on board that ship that night. But God's not interested in any of their prayers. Their prayers don't count as far as he's concerned. He's only interested in the prayers of the Mormon ensign, who is righteous enough to be appointed as chaplain by the captain of the ship. Those are the only prayers God cares about, and he only cares about them to the extent that Ensign Blair is going to heed these little niggling promptings that God gives him while he's praying about, what should I do next? What can I do to help? He's not going to calm the storm. He's just going to make Ensign Blair jump through the necessary hoops to save the ship. But then setting theology aside, if we actually start looking at the facts, this story seems extremely unlikely to have happened, at least in the manner it was told. And of course, the first thing that jumped out to me is, why is the captain of a ship taking the advice of an ensign over his chief engineer when the question has to do with engineering and what it is that should be done? That seems very unlikely. That seems very odd. And frankly, this is reminiscent of the story told in 2017 April General Conference about God moving upon the non-member fire chief to send his men into the Blazing Stake Center to take the church art off the walls. Why would a leader do that kind of thing which puts others under his command in jeopardy? Why would he do that? It is not rational. It is not reasonable. And in fact, I think it's fair to say that it probably did not happen. But as I continue to think more and more about this story, other things came to my mind. And I thought, you know, I was never in the Navy. I don't know a lot about boats. Let me ask some other people who have been in the Navy for a career and who do know a lot about boats. And let me put out word and an SOS of sorts to find out what those kinds of people who do know about ships, who do know about storms, who have been on ships in storms in the Navy, and see what they think of this story that is told by Ensign Blair. And what ended up happening is that when people who were experts on the subject started weighing in, they started piling up inconsistency after inconsistency in this story to the point where it actually totals out over a dozen inconsistencies, improbabilities, and even impossibilities that are built into this story. Things that you would not know are improbabilities or impossibilities unless you were an expert in the field. So let me go over those with you rather quickly. The first thing we see is that the captain of the ship walks down to the ensign's cabin to ask him to pray. That's part of the story. You remember that. But according to the experts and career Navy men, in a storm of this magnitude, the captain would not have left the bridge. If the captain wanted to talk to the ensign, the captain would have summoned the ensign to the bridge, not the other way around. A captain might conceivably send an ensign to check something if it didn't involve wandering around a wave-swept deck or listen to an ensign with important news. But if the captain wants to talk to the ensign, I'm sure the ensign is summoned to the bridge. The mountain does not go to Muhammad. And those are the words of one of these career Navy people that was consulted. The mountain does not go to Muhammad. And that's not a matter of the dignity of rank. People need to be able to find the captain immediately at any moment in a storm. 
So he needs to be on the bridge, not off wandering the ship. So the story of the captain knocking on the pious ensign's door in the middle of a storm makes no sense. So that's just a small detail that's woven into the fabric of this story that according to experts in the Navy, men who have actually served in the Navy, been in storms in the Navy, identify as being problematic and in all likelihood not true. It's certainly not in line with their experience or with the normal rules and regulations in the Navy. Number two, why and how is it that the ensign is actually going to bed to go to sleep in a storm of this size? Remember he says he finishes his watch so he's going to go hit the hay? Remember these are 45 foot waves. If you're looking at a building, some type of building that's at least five stories high, usually those stories are about 10 feet each and if you go up four and a half stories that's the size of these waves. These are massive waves. This ship is being tossed and thrown on the ocean. This is a massive typhoon. Not only are the waves huge, the wind is howling, and I don't care what time of night it is, and I don't care if he has just finished his watch. This is an ensign. The least likely place he would be going to would be to bed, but that sets the stage for the captain to come walking by his door and leave the bridge in order to do so. So as I say, it seems unlikely the ensign would be getting a lot of sleep that night, but maybe he is just a sound sleeper. The third problem with the story is that the ensign goes up to see the captain, who is now where he should be, by the way. Notice that the captain, after going to see the ensign at his room and ask him to pray, when the ensign wants to go see the captain after praying the first time and figuring out he needs to go talk to the captain about what's going on, see if there's anything he can do, he finds the captain where? On the bridge, which is where he should be. But the ensign goes up to the bridge, finds the captain, asks for permission to go outside and look around, which permission is granted by the captain. This whole aspect of the story is fraught with problems. The first problem is that no captain would have permitted any crew member to go outside in a storm of this magnitude. According to the experts, it doesn't make any difference if the ensign had a safety rope on or not. He was still in great peril of being swept overboard. Not only that, even if he were not in peril of being swept overboard, Waves of this size, remember they're 45 feet high, would be coming up as high as the bridge. It is not just being swept overboard that is the problem. The problem is getting dashed and killed by the waves themselves. This is something that had not occurred to me until I was finding it out from a person who actually has experience with storms of this type. It isn't just getting swept overboard, and by the way, these lines snap all the time because of the forces involved in such storms. But the problem is made worse by the fact that even if the ensign is kept on the deck by a lifeline that doesn't break, the waves themselves are so big that they will dash and kill him on the deck, even if he is not swept overboard. Now here I will note that in one of the experts' opinions, the description of the typhoon was accurate. This career Navy man was in two large typhoons in the Pacific and 45 foot waves are believable to him. This expert described his experiences and commented that 45 foot waves would be higher than the bridge. He related an experience he had in a typhoon. He was in the bridge because he was an officer and stated that the ship would go down in a trough and things would go black as the waves would cover them. The decks were washed by the waves and the waves would even hit their bridge windows. Then the waves would push the ship high, which would bring the screws out of the water. By the way, screws is the Navy term for propellers. So the waves, when the ship went high, would bring those propellers or the screws out of the water. He also said, this one expert said, that in this situation everything was battened down as per Navy regulation. But even so, they still lost equipment because fasteners would break. There could be no open hatches, and no one, he repeatedly emphasized this, no one would be allowed on deck, as they would either be swept overboard, rope or no rope, or dashed by the 45-foot waves. In fact, this part of the story really pissed him off because it implied the captain of this mystery ship was an idiot to allow such a thing. But even if we grant that Ensign Blair was allowed by the captain to go out on the deck of the ship, even though it's a 45-foot wave typhoon, even though it's the middle of the night, remember. The very fact that Ensign Blair claims to see the propellers as they turn is problematic. In fact, it's nigh impossible.
because on top of this is the problem of seeing the propellers. The propellers do not extend beyond the rear of the boat. This is not an Evinrude outboard motor that is slapped on the back of a transport ship. The propellers are not outboard, they are inboard. They do not extend beyond the rear of the ship. They cannot be seen simply by looking over the end of the ship when the propellers come out of the water because they are underneath the ship. So even the idea that Ensign Blair was able to see the propellers is called into question. All Navy ships, according to the experts I consulted, all Navy ships and all ships in general are built so that their screws are protected by being under the stern. There are reasons for this. Things fall off of ships. Equipment falls off ship. Garbage falls off ship. In many World War II ships, they had garbage chutes located on the stern. And even people fall off ships. You don't want this stuff falling onto the screws to be churned up and cause possible damage. You also don't want exposed screws when mooring by a dock or close by other ships, which is a common practice. One of the experts remembers being moored so close to other ships that once a large wave pushed a moored ship into his ship, causing the anchor to pierce the hull. This expert believes it is impossible to see the screws from the deck. He said this could be verified by looking at ship schematics and challenged me to find one that showed the screws extending out from under the stern. Well, the fact is, there are no screws that extend out beyond the stern of any Navy ships that would have been being used during the Korean War, and almost certainly not on the ship that Ensign Blair says this experience happened on. So how is it that he managed to see the propellers? How is it that he managed to see the screws from the deck of the ship? There is simply no line of sight where he could have been located on the deck of the ship, even in the back of the ship, in order to see the propellers even when they came out of the water. Another problem here is that the ability to see the propellers is made more difficult because this occurred at night. And not only did it occur at night, it occurred during a massive typhoon with 45-foot waves, remember, raging. And the biggest point is that nobody would really go peering over the stern rail in a storm bad enough to sink a warship. Yeah, I reckon this expert is right. But even if we allow Ensign Blair to see the propellers, we have to understand a couple of things. The first thing is that the propeller that's going really fast when it comes out of the water is to be expected. Because when a propeller comes out of the water, it goes slower in the water because of the resistance provided by the water. But when it comes out of the water, of course it is going to turn much faster than it does when it is in the water. So having a propeller be in the water and then come out of the water because it's cresting on a wave and being exposed to the air and then spinning very fast, that's not unusual. In fact, that's to be expected. The next problem with making any sense out of this story is that this information about one propeller spinning faster than the other propeller was already known to the captain and the engineer. Remember how I said where the story tips its hand and shows that the captain already knew this information? When Ensign Blair comes to the bridge and says, hey, I just risked my life out there and found out that one propeller is going super fast. And the captain says, yeah, we already know that. The engineer told me I should make it go even faster. Well, the reason why is because, believe it or not, you don't have to go out and look at the propellers on a troop transport ship or on any Navy ship to be able to figure out how fast the engine is going. They actually have tachometers on ship, both in the engine room as well as on the bridge, so that people can look at gauges and see how fast the engine is going, or in other words, how fast the propeller is spinning. It's like on a car. If you want to know how fast the engine is turning around, you can look at the RPMs on the dash in order to find that out. You don't have to actually open up the hood and look in at the engine as it's spinning and see that it's going fast. You can tell it by looking at the tachometer. The same is true on Navy ships. You don't have to hang off the end of the boat in the middle of a hurricane, in the middle of the night, and see an engine propeller going super fast to find out that the propeller is going super fast. So what God ends up doing in this story is playing a huge practical joke on Ensign Blair and sending him out in the middle of a typhoon on deck to be thrown overboard, to be dashed by the waves, so he can hang off the end, look at a propeller going super fast, 
go back up to the bridge and tell the captain information that the captain already has and in fact information that Ensign Blair could have gotten just by looking at the tachometer himself on the bridge without going out into the storm at all. So then we have to ask the question about this story. Why all the drama to find out something the captain and the engineer already knew? Why all the drama to find out something the ensign could have figured out the first time he was up on the bridge by just looking at the tachometer or asking the captain or asking the engineer for crying out loud? And remember what it is the captain says the engineer has recommended to him. The captain says that the engineer has said we should take that one engine that's already running super fast and make it run even faster. Do you remember why, according to the story? It was so that they could outrun the storm. Outrun the storm? They're already in the middle of the storm. They can't outrun the storm. When you outrun a storm, it's because you see the storm on the horizon and it's approaching and you try and get out of its way. That's called outrunning the storm. They're in the middle of the storm. You can't outrun the storm when you're in the middle of it. That's a crazy, crazy detail in the story. There's a different set of priorities with regard to using propellers and engine power when you are in a storm. Once at sea, the captain has to concentrate on two things when he is in a storm. Maintaining the steering way and avoiding a lee shore. And what that means is steering way is necessary to keep the bow into the wind and the waves. This much is sort of common to people at least from seeing movies like I have. I don't have a lot of experience on the sea. But when there is a storm, you have to continue to go into the storm. Either that or directly away from the storm. Because what you don't want to do is present the side of your ship to the storm because then you're going to get blown over and capsized. That's what it means when it says steering way is necessary to keep the bow into the wind and the waves. That's what a real captain is going to be concentrating on who is in a real typhoon of this nature. Not trying to outrun the storm. And how does it make sense to have one propeller going super fast while the other is going slower if they want to outrun anything? What that would do is have the ship going in circles. If you've got one propeller going super fast and the other propeller not going as fast, what happens? You go in circles. That is, unless they wanted to wear away on the rudder by banking it hard the other way to keep the ship from going in circles. That's a possibility. But according to the experts, this whole thing doesn't make any sense at all. Having one prop faster than the other will result in the ship going in circles. You can correct with the rudder, but that will slow you down and it will reduce your maneuverability and possibly damage the rudder system. And that is the one thing you don't want to have happen when you're in the middle of a storm is to reduce your maneuverability. Your life depends upon your maneuverability and being able to keep the steering way into the storm or away from the storm. One of the experts I consulted said he could not think of any good reason why you would want to intentionally run a ship like that, even in a storm. So in other words, this whole idea about the engineer saying, hey, we got one going faster than the other, let's run the one that's going fast, even faster, no way, it would never happen. You would never do that in a storm because you'd end up going in circles, reducing your maneuverability and making it more likely that the ship is going to capsize and go to the bottom of the sea. Then there is that most obvious discrepancy, the one that hit me first. The captain is going to take advice from the ensign over the advice of his engineer. This isn't First Officer Spock overruling Scotty. This is Chekhov overruling Scotty. Scotty's the engineer. He tells Captain Kirk to do something. Chekhov goes and has a look around, finds out information about the dilithium crystals. Chekhov goes to the bridge and tells Kirk about what he's found out. And Captain Kirk says, congratulations, moron. We already knew that. Chekhov then says he has a good idea, which happens to contradict what Scotty has just told Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk then tells Chekhov he is going with Chekhov's idea over Scotty. Come on, that just isn't going to happen. The idea of an ensign having the brilliant idea that no one else did is highly suspect. This is according to the experts I consulted. Not only is the ensign going against the captain and the chief engineer, he also is going over a number of other higher ranking officers, including the executive officer and the whole engineering team. Any of these people would be well within their rights to point out a potentially problematic 
order. If there was a problem, a number of people would be there to see it. And all of these people would be higher ranking officers than the ensign. So really what this story is saying is it's not just the ensign against the engineer. It's the ensign against the engineer, the whole engineering team, all the superior officers, and the captain. And the story is framed in such a way that the ensign is coming up with an idea that would have obviously occurred to everybody else who was his supervisor. This was the obvious idea. The other idea was a dumb idea. It was an idea that was so dumb that it would never have been recommended by the engineer, the engineering team, and not been countermanded by any of the higher ranking officers on the bridge, the higher ranking officers than the ensign. And so I began to find out as I listened to the experts how absolutely ludicrous this entire story was. But if you're not familiar with the sea and ships and storms, this story can be passed off as a legitimate miracle story. And that was what was attempted in General Conference of April 2018. And finally, there is also the aspect of this story that it is coming from a person who knows when this happened. Ensign Blair claims to have been there when this happens. He knows when it happened. He knows the name of the ship on which it happened. He must know it. He must know the name of the captain. But for some reason, he doesn't want to share these details. He doesn't want to share when it happened. He doesn't want to share the name of the ship. And he doesn't want to share the name of the captain. Is it possible? Is it possible that even after all this time, nobody wants to share these details because they could end up sinking the story? In the same way that Elder Paul H. Dunn's stories ended up getting sunk because he shared too many details, including the name of his best friend, Harold Brown. Now, I also shared this story by Ensign Blair with another friend of mine who is not career Navy, but is career Mormon. And he gave this great analogy. This has nothing to do with the Navy, it has nothing to do with Star Trek, but it has to do with something that could happen in everyday life. And that's why I like it so much. Here's his analogy. He says this, Elder Wilson, remember it's Elder Wilson who tells this story. So imagine this, Elder Wilson is on a ski trip with his grandkids. The roads get really bad and the mountain is dangerous. Elder Wilson asks the kids to pray. One of the children doesn't just ask to be taken to safety, but asks what he can do to help. The Holy Ghost tells the child to get out of the car and check out the roads during a blizzard. Elder Wilson asks for the prayer, right? He can't just ask for magic to happen when the Lord wants us to be part of the solution. And so he's going to let the kid go out into the blizzard and check things out. He'd agree to this, right? The advisory coming over the radio is to put chains on. But the child learned something different, and the Holy Ghost tells the child not to put chains on the car. Is Elder Wilson really going to listen to his kid? So this hypothetical story throws into sharp relief how ridiculous this entire story is that is being told by Elder Wilson in General Conference about Ensign Blair's experience during the Korean War. In essence, then, this is a story that is not that miraculous in the first place, but upon closer examination and scrutiny, it falls apart and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean itself. This story never happened, at least not in the way that it is told. And the miraculous elements of this story are just as likely to be correct as are the factual elements of the story, which the experts that I consulted have completely torpedoed. And so, in closing, the great tradition of Mormonism, of telling miracle stories, which upon closer examination end up having all the miraculous elements stripped away from it, continues apace with this latest contribution in the 2018 April General Conference. It is apparent that the LDS Church promises the power and ability of Superman, but can't even live up to Clark Kent. And so in honor of Elder Larry Wilson and Ensign Blair and Paul H. Dunn and Jeffrey Holland and all the great miracle stories in Mormonism that upon closer examination end up not being so miraculous after all, I want to play the following song from the Walt Disney production, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's right, this is Kirk Douglas singing A Whale of a Tale. This is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air. Got a whale of a tale to tell you lads A whale of a tale or two About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved On nights like this with the moon above A whale of a tale and it's all true I swear by my tattoo There was Mermaid Minnie 
Met her down in Madagascar, she would kiss me any time that I would ask her. Then one evening, her flame of love blew out. Blow me down and pick me up, she swapped me for a trout. Got a whale of a tail to tell you lies, a whale of a tail or two. Got the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Typhoon Tessie, met her on the coast of Java when we kissed. I bubbled up like molten lava, then she gave me the scare of my young life. Blow me down and pick me up, she was the captain's wife. Got a whale of a tail, you tell you the whale of a tail or two. By the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. Whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Harpoon Hannah. Had a face that made you shudder. Lips like fish hooks. And a nose just like a rudder If I kissed her And held her tenderly Held her tenderly There's no sea monster big enough To ever frighten me Got a whale of a tail to tell you, lad A whale of a tail or two But the flapping fish and the girls I've loved On nights like this with the moon above Whale of a tail and it's all true I swear by my tattoo Ahoy! Ship off the starboard boat!